It is good to see you all this morning. Um, I, I dislike immensely having to not be able to meet together uh, because of any circumstance. We've done this before because of weather-related things, and now um, too many times this year because of COVID-related things. It is always a difficulty when we can't do that. It is a, a grace, then, that we do get to meet back together again. It, it really does make me happy and filled with joy that we can gather together and be present with one another to hear God's word. Um, so I am really grateful for all of you uh, who have come to be here. I know that we're short on numbers today because a lot of families in our membership are, are out, uh, both because they're being pre protective of their families with COVID. Uh, they're quarantining themselves so that they don't get others sick, and some of them are sick themselves. So um, let us continue to think uh, about them throughout the week and be praying for them that they might come back and be with us. But all the more reason I'm grateful uh, for you all to be here this morning. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. If you have a Bible, please open it to John chapter 18. And soon we will be reading from the last portion of that chapter from verses 28 through 40. One of the great pleasures I have in being a dad is that I get to take what I love and force it upon my children. Some people call that sharing, but really in, in my house it's not sharing so much as telling them that they're going to sit down and listen to the music I like and watch the movies I like as well. And there are certain things that I'm really looking forward to watching and, and enjoying with my kids certain movies that I've got in, in the back of my mind that I want them to be able to enjoy with me. Some of those are not quite appropriate for them yet. One of my favorite of all of the, the movies that I get to watch with them, hopefully one day, is The Matrix. Uh, my, my wife always gets annoyed because I'm always like, hey, let's watch The Matrix. And she's like, no, no, we've seen that 18 times. That's, that's enough. She, she understands what it's about. Um, it hits all the boxes for me. It, it's, it's really well filmed. Um, there's terrific world building going on in it. It's an incredibly well thought out movie. It's mysterious. It has wonderful action sequences. And the most important thing that any movie can have, it's really philosophical, which is what draws all the people to the box office. It's a well thought through movie. Basically, the movie's premise is this. The world that you see around you is not the real world. It's a simulation. It's, it's fake. It's a fraud. And it, there's a reason why that is in place. And the movie doesn't really continue to search that premise out. It's kind of just placed there for the movie to have a plot to work with. But I think that that's a really interesting question. People have been asking that question ever since the 17th century when Descartes first asked it. And he didn't really do a good job of answering it. People have tried after that. And they've done a pretty bad job of it as well. What if everything around you is fake? What if the people around you don't actually exist? What if there is a real reality beyond the reality that you can touch, feel, taste, and smell? What if this is what the kingdom of God is indeed like, which while not invisible is hard to see? We can't understand unless, like in the Matrix, someone from outside were to come in and tell us what we are seeing and what we are doing. The kingdom of God is ever present but hardly felt or seen by many in this world. And given the way that the matrix actually plays out, it's not just me that thinks that there's a link between Christianity and what they're trying to do in the movie. It's clear that they're drawing connections to Christianity in the movie. But the kingdom isn't a movie or some sort of philosophical proposition. It is what we would say is the truest reality. It is there. Whether it's unfelt or unnoticed by most people, it is there, and it will always be there. It is unmovable and unshakable. Therefore, it is the realest of all the realities. 
But it is incredibly difficult to get people to see the kingdom, to get people to realize that the kingdom is there. You can look around in America, even at professing Christians, and you can tell that it's difficult for them to see past this world to the kingdom. So many Christians in the world confuse America with the kingdom, or their particular brand of Christianity with the kingdom, or even themselves with the kingdom. Why is it that the kingdom is so hard to see? Why is it so hard to understand? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It is at times the ruler of this world, at times our own sin that keeps us blinded from the kingdom of God. And today we get a really wonderful picture of this blindness in action. The trial of Jesus continues. Jesus has now been delivered from Annas and Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters because they need Pilate to execute Jesus. Jesus will stand in the midst of the King of Kings, of the Lord of Glory, of the very king over a kingdom that will last forever, and he doesn't understand who he is talking to. How do they all miss it? Read with me in John 18, verses 28 through 40. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, Will you say that I'm a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of our God. First thing, I would like to tell you about how they miss it and how you can miss the kingdom of God is first to mistake your problems. Misunderstand, mistake what your actual true problems are in this world. The Jews take Jesus from Annas and Caiaphas and they are going to Pilate's headquarters. Pilate's natural headquarters would not have been in Jerusalem. He was only there because the Passover was being held and he needs to be close to Jerusalem in case a riot or some sort of national zealotry breaks out. 
And so he wants to be there so that he can quell any sort of insurrection. And they take him to his headquarters. The interesting note here is that they refuse to go into his house. Now, according to Jewish law, it's fairly unclear why they did this. It's unclear what defilement they thought that they were going to have. It's unclear if they were right in this understanding of defilement or wrong in this understanding of defilement, which doesn't really matter. All that matters is the Jews refused to go into his house because they were concerned that they would be defiled. So to keep themselves from being defiled, they stood outside and called into Pilate and had Pilate come out. Whatever the reason, there's great irony in what they're doing. They are overly concerned that they will not be able to participate in the celebration of God's victory for them if they go into Pilate's house because they will be defiled before God. They will be separated from God by the things of the world. Meanwhile, they're at Pilate's house to condemn an innocent man. Which of these two acts are truly defiling? To be in the house of a Gentile regardless of what is inside those walls or to seek the injustice of putting an innocent person to death? They think that they can condemn the innocent and still participate in God's salvation. Proverbs 17.5 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Jesus himself has said that there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. The Jews were overly concerned about what was happening around them, and they were not introspective nearly enough on what they were doing. They thought that their problem was that Jesus might cause a riot. They thought that their problem was that Rome might crush them. Their problem was they were the kind of people who would condemn an innocent man. Friends, if you misunderstand what your real problems are, if you mistake the real problems in this world for things that are not, if you misunderstand what separates you from God, you will always mistake the kingdom. If you think that your problem is that you lack material resources, you will always miss the real nature of God's kingdom. Romans 14, 7, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you think that your problem is simply that you're broken, but that you're broken and not sinful, that broken is just something that has happened to you and is not ultimately due to your sin. If you see brokenness not as a side effect or not as an ultimate effect of your sin, but just the way of the world, then you will always want something to fix the brokenness and you'll never actually fix the problem. In the 19th century, there were cholera outbreaks continuously, a major one in England. And doctors had to fix the symptoms and they worked on the symptoms and the cholera outbreak just got worse and worse and worse because the problem was the water that everyone drank. If you don't fix the problem, it doesn't matter how many symptoms you work on. Your brokenness will always be present unless you realize that your real problem is your sin. If you think that your problem is only your individual sin and the greater problems in the world are not due to the lingering effects of other sins on everyone around you, you will also miss the kingdom of God because the kingdom is communal. The kingdom includes all of us. There are lingering effects from sin all over the place and those things are to be addressed because the kingdom is to set all things right, not just you. Friends, understand well your plight and the problems that this world has correctly. For only then will you see the true nature of the solution 
And only then will you see the true beauty and the glory of the kingdom of God. First, they mistake their problems. Second, they mistake the Old Testament. The Jews misunderstood the very thing that they were desiring to celebrate. The Passover was a celebration and a remembrance of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. The last of the ten plagues that he was going to bring on Egypt was going to be the destruction of the firstborn. Any of the firstborn, whether in a family of Hebrews or whether it was in a family of Egyptians, was going to be struck down. But God did allow a way for the Jewish people, a way for the Hebrew people to evade that judgment. They were to kill a lamb. They were to put its blood on the doorposts and the lentil. Now it's important to remember that God was very clear about this. Other plagues fell just on the Egyptians. Other plagues God separated out from the Egyptians and the Hebrews. But not this one. He was very clear. If there is not blood on the doorposts and the lentil, I will not pass it by. The only way I will pass over it is if their blood is there. Outside of God's grace, all would suffer. But God gave them protection in his grace. God passed over their wickedness. God's judgment leapt over them because of this Passover. There was mercy on those who were guilty. And the Jews here are seeking to condemn the innocent. Even as they celebrate the Passover. This festival was always a way to celebrate the deliverance that God's people got from his wrath. And not only are they trying to condemn an innocent person, but they don't even seem to realize that that puts them directly in line of God's wrath. Deuteronomy 12, 26 said this, talking about the Passover and the celebration of the Passover. When your children say to you, what do you mean by the service? Why do we do this, Dad? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. He spared them. He gave you mercy. You were due judgment. You were not outside the judgment of God. You're not outside the wrath of God, but he passed over you. And yet here they are, seeking unjustly Jesus' life. And he even told them who he was. He told them, they seek to find in the scriptures eternal life. But it is the scriptures that bear witness about Jesus. And you refuse to come to him that you might have life. Much of the Old Testament is an extended parable. It's an extended visual analogy of what Jesus was going to come and do. Kind of the way we, we talk to children about simple things and we, we break down difficult concepts into simpler things so that they might understand what it is when they actually get to the, the, the very nuts and bolts of the difficulty that we're going to lead them into, whether it's in math or anything else. We talk to them about biology. We use simple illustrations to build up to more complicated things as they get older and older and older. And God has done the same thing. Our salvation is pictured in the Old Testament, but those pictures are fulfilled in Jesus and so standing in front of them is the true Passover, the one that will allow the people of God by applying the blood to their hearts to escape from the very wrath of God that he is about to pour out. They will indeed kill the Passover lamb, but they will not apply the blood to themselves. They misunderstand the picture, they mistake its importance, and they mistake the kingdom of God. Third, mistake your importance. Mistake your importance. 
mistake your importance. The actual give and take between Pilate and the Jewish leadership is very odd. And I think that we can be mistaken for thinking that Pilate is kind of ambushed by all of this, that he doesn't know what's going on, that he is asking questions that any right leader and governor would ask. But I think that that's not probably true. I think Pilate has a really good idea of what's going on. Pilate must have known what they were arresting Jesus for. So if you remember back in the beginning of chapter 18, it wasn't just the officers and the servants of the high priest that went to arrest Jesus, but there was a band of soldiers that went with them. That band of soldiers wasn't at the leadership of the Jews' behest to move anywhere they wanted them to. In order for that band of soldiers to be authorized to go anywhere, Pilate would have had to give the say-so. The only reason Pilate would have given the say-so for something like that is because the person that they were going to arrest might have started a riot. So there's really good evidence in the text that implies that Pilate knew very well what they were doing with Jesus, very well the kind of charges that they were going to bring against Jesus. After all, by the time we get down to verse 33, Pilate asks them, are you the king of the Jews? You will notice at no place in our text did the Jews actually charge Jesus with that. The only thing the Jews can say is, listen, man, he's done evil things. Go get him. Pilate knows exactly why Jesus is there. So why the little game? The little game is there because Pilate is a wretched man. He was known for being filled with self-ambition. He was known for ruthless violence to show his power and his authority. Here he desires to show his power and authority by making the Jews grovel. Yeah, they came to him in the back room, but honestly, you're going to have to repeat it all over to me again. He wants to show that he has power and authority in this situation, that he is the one with all of the power and all of the authority in this situation. He wants them basically to say, Pilate, we need you. Pilate, you have the power. Pilate, you have the authority. Pilate throws it back in their face. Say, why don't you go judge him by your law? He knows very well why they won't judge him by their law. They won't judge him by their law because they can't get the ends that they want through their law. They have to have Pilate, and he wants to hear it. And here sits before Pilate the most important man in the history of the world, the creator of the world, the sustainer of it, the one who will judge the quick and the dead. And Pilate is doing his best to run up a score on the Jews. That's that's what he's busy doing. Jesus is just a prop. He is just a tool that the Jews have brought him for him to show his grandeur and his glory. He wants them to know that they are impotent without him. Friends, please do not, do not mistake your importance. Jesus is not a prop for your desires or your wants to be played out on. He is not something that you use to make yourself great and glorious. He is not a tool that you use simply to get what you want out of the world. Thinking this way, you will completely and utterly miss Jesus' kingdom as one of your own. And I guarantee you, your own is doubtlessly pathetic. It is limited in the grossest nature. And it is ultimately worthy of being burned as it stands against the true and ever-living kingdom. 
Friends, you must avoid such thoughts. Jesus isn't here to make you feel grand. He is not here to make you feel glorious. He does that. Let's be very clear. He does that, but only in him. You receive glory like the moon receives light from the sun. The more glorious, the more shining and bright the sun is, the more the moon can reflect it. Your glory is only a reflection of Jesus' glory. Do you want to be glorified, friend? Give glory to Christ. Don't mistake your importance. Fourth, don't mistake the kingdom's importance. That's what the Jews do and what Pilate does here. He mistakes the kingdom's importance. Jesus asks a very insightful question. He says, this is an interesting question, Pilate. Am I the king of the Jews? Where did you come up with this? Was this of your own thinking or did somebody tell you to ask me that? There were many Gentiles who had an interest in the things of the Jews. Jewish religion was idiosyncratic. They had one God that they thought ruled over everything. It seemed kind of stupid to most Greeks. And so there were some Gentiles that were, had their interest piqued by this and they studied the scriptures and they looked at the scriptures. These people might even become God-fearers and, and cling on to the truth that they might find there. And Jesus is simply asking Pilate, was this something that you've been thinking about? Is this something that's kind of rolling through your head or did somebody ask you to ask me? Pilate couldn't blow off the question quicker and he couldn't make it seem more insulting. Am, am I a Jew? Like, am I, am I supposed to spend my time thinking over your piddly business? Am I supposed to waste my important time thinking about some rinky-dink kingdom of some backwoods people here all the way away from Rome? It's a rhetorical question. Obviously, he's not a Jew. After all the grandstanding he's been doing, making the Jews grovel before him, it's not too far out of the question to think that Pilate finds the accusation that he might have been thinking about the things of the Jews insulting. Why would he even consider it? Yet this small nation, small nation that doesn't even understand their own destiny at this point in time, is indeed important. And this king, as meek as he might seem, will appear one day crowned as the king of kings and the lord of lords. Pilate thinks that that kingdom, this kingdom that is not of the earth, this kingdom of the Jews, this kingdom of, of whatever this king is ruler over, is below him. That Pilate himself is too important and what he rules over is too important to even consider it. And that frankly, just taking care of the task that's in front of him is more important than thinking through whether or not this Jesus is king over the world. Friend, again, don't be led down that path. The kingdom of God, ruled over by Jesus Christ, is to be the foremost thing in your mind, day in and day out. There is nothing more important to think through than the kingdom of God. Listen to how Jesus himself puts it in Matthew chapter 6. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Get the grand weight that Jesus is giving the kingdom of God there. He says, to a huge number, a large number of poor people, 
who probably have a great deal of problem finding food at times. They have real strong worries about the kind of clothing they're going to be able to find and whether they can afford new ones. Jesus says, you really ought be concerned about all that. The number one concerned while you are poor, while you are hungry, while you are thirsty, while you don't know where you're going to spend the night, the number one concern you ought to have is the kingdom of God. Your basic needs fall below the importance of thinking and considering the kingdom of God. Your job is not more important than the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God comes first. Your job is leverage for the kingdom of God. Your family is not more important than the kingdom of God. The kingdom always comes first. Fifth, Pilate mistakes true philosophy. Pilate mistakes true philosophy. Jesus' words in verses 36 and 37 are quite profound. Jesus knows exactly what Pilate is after, and he gives him the exact answer that Pilate needs. This is important because Jesus is about to show not only earlier what kind of death he was going to die, but here he proves his innocence even before Pilate. Pilate asks him, are you a king of the Jews? He says, well, who asked you? And so Pilate says again, what have you done? And Jesus then answers him and answers him specifically here, my kingdom. The only people who can say my kingdom are kings. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Jesus is saying, basically, what Rome is concerned about here is that I'm going to lead some sort of revolt, but you already have evidence that I'm not going to do that. You have evidence that I'm not going to do that because when those soldiers came to arrest me, nothing happened. The one thing that did happen, I fixed immediately and told my people to lay down their swords. You know that I'm not going to fight you. You know that I pose no threat to Rome. Therefore, Jesus clears himself. Pilate then answers and says, so you are a king. And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't give him a full-out affirmative. Jesus doesn't say, yes, I'm a king. He says, so you say. The reason for this is because Pilate's understanding of what a king is is all messed up. Pilate thinks that kings wield authority and power. Kings are there for their own aggrandizement. Those in power are there to make themselves more powerful. They are not there to serve. Jesus doesn't want to lead him down the path of thinking that's the kind of king he is in any way, shape, or form. So while affirming that he is a king, he doesn't assent fully to what Pilate has said. Rather, he simply says, you have said so. But then Jesus does this incredibly interesting thing, and he starts to define his kingdom. And he says this, for this purpose, this purpose that I've born into the world and that I've come into the world, is my kingdom is not of this world, but for this purpose I've come into the world and was born into this world to bear witness to the truth. Now you might think of kings having a lot of functions in the world, they are to deliver their people from their enemies. They are to make sure that justice is done and that there is order in the world. They are to kind of help define the economy of the kingdom that they're over. But Jesus defines his kingdom and he defines his role as a king, as one who witnesses to the truth. I have no doubt that this goes over Pilate's head. It ought not. Pilate should have asked about it. He doesn't. This is kind of weird for us, but it's 
perfectly biblical. After all, the first king of the world was Adam. Adam made in the image of God and told to rule. The whole purpose of him ruling was not because there was unruliness everywhere, but so that he might image God to the animals, to the plants, even to his wife and to his children, that he might be the image of God spread over the world. And that in ruling and doing this, he perfectly mirrors who God is. But Adam could not do that. Adam did not keep the snake out of the garden. He did not protect his wife. And he followed her and the snake rather than God. Even the Israelite kings were to be the same way. In 2 Samuel 7, that important Christological passage where we have the prophecy coming to David that there will be a house for you forevermore, there is indeed a promise that your kings, your sons, will be my son. Not simply pointing at Jesus, but pointing at Solomon and every king thereafter. They should follow me. They should be like sons to me. They should do the things that I do and mirror my image to the world. As David was said to have a heart after God's own heart, that's exactly the kind of thing that God was thinking of. But Israelite king after Israelite king failed. But Jesus witnesses perfectly to the truth. He is, as they say, the true and better Adam. He does what Adam and all of the kings of Israel didn't or couldn't do. He witnesses perfectly to God's character. He carries forth perfectly God's justice. He watches perfectly over God's people, even as he has gotten done saying several times in the later part of chapter 17 and the earlier part of chapter 18, I let none of them fall away. He witnesses perfectly to God's character and that he wins victory over all of God's enemies. This is exactly what he does when he witnesses to the truth. He is the perfect image of God to man, and thus the reality of truth to them. All of this is wonderfully true, and it should have piqued the interest of Pilate. It should have made him stop and think, what in the world are you talking about, man? Because that doesn't make a lick of sense to me. Instead, Pilate says this, what is truth? That's a brilliant question, and it's a question that all of you ought to spend a lot of time thinking about. What is truth? How do we find it? How do we know we have it? What is the nature and the condition of truth? Now, I'm not telling you to go out and buy a large work of philosophy and read it. Wouldn't hurt. But you don't have to do that. Consider what Jesus means when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. How is Jesus the truth? These are really good things to think about. It is an excellent question. But it's not an excellent question the way Pilate uses it. The whole purpose of Pilate saying, what is the truth, is to give him an out. It's for him to shake his shoulders and toss his hands up in the air and say, I don't know, man, what is the truth? Let's go get you condemned. The whole reason why he asks this very important question is so that he can turn away from Jesus and leave him. Friends, don't be lazy. Think. You have to think. You don't have to plumb the depths of all of the philosophical problems in the world. But you also can't throw your hands up at difficult questions and say, well, I don't know, and therefore Christianity doesn't make any sense to me. People like to throw these big philosophical questions and big ideas out there. They're doing it a lot of the time, not because they actually want answers, but because they don't want answers. They just want to be able to turn away from Jesus and leave him alone. I'll say, well, I don't know if I, can, if I can buy into Christianity. There's so much suffering and evil in the world. I don't know. I've got 
issues with the sovereignty of God and his rulership over everything, if that's true. There's so many different beliefs, you Protestant people. Got denominations everywhere. Every one of you believes something different. Everyone can come to the Bible and get their own. What, what am I supposed to take away from this? Now, there are certain people, when they ask that, they're asking good questions, honest questions. But a lot of people ask those types of questions because they just don't care. They want to stop the conversation and they want to move on. Listen to how many, how many celebrity Christians who end up turning themselves against the church ask questions that there are volumes written on in Christianity where deep answers have been given to very deep questions and instead the people who are buying into these cheap pathetic answers that the world gives have not thought deeply about them. They mistake true philosophy. They, they feel like they don't need to do the work. They will take the simple answers and run because it was never about the question anyway. It was just about leaving the room. Sixth, mistake humor's purpose. When Pilate leaves, he asks a very simple question. Do you want me to release? There's a custom. You guys have this custom. I will release to you somebody. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? It's not much of a joke, but I have no doubt that Pilate meant it as a joke. It really serves Pilate's interest in a couple of different ways. One, he is clear that the Jews have handed Jesus over to him so that they would crucify him. So he knows he's got to make this offer anyways, but he does it in such a way that one, shows that, hey, is this really your king? Because I'm greater than him. And I have the right to condemn him and I have the right to let him go. So it's, it's another kind of lip service to the fact that he is greater and greater, uh, greater and grandeur than all of the Jews and even than Jesus. He thinks that he stands in power over him. But it also secures the exact thing that the Jews want. The Jews couldn't very well ask for Jesus to be returned to him. For Pilate, it's all a game. He's going to use his sharp wit and his sharp tongue to drive home empty points. We often think of jokes and sort of the way in which we speak about things as being immune to consequences so long as we can say things like, oh, I was just joking, or it was just something I said. I, I didn't really mean it. You took it the wrong way. But that line, oh, I was just joking, almost never comes after a good hearty laugh. It always comes at somebody else's expense. There are different levels of this. But what Pilate was doing here was deflecting from his own sin. There was an innocent man in his charge, and he said the very thing that would lead that innocent man to be condemned. Pilate might be able to stand before God and say, hey, listen, I offered them a way out, and sure, I used language that was inflammatory and almost guaranteed to get them to turn on Jesus, but I was only joking. I'm pretty sure that God won't find that funny. Ephesians 5, 4 and 5 says this, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And notice what Paul does there. He lists this idea of crude joking, which one lexicon, I'm glad for this, gives a possible gloss as buffoonery, which I would really like to find way into modern Bibles. Let no buffoonery be among you. 
but alas, no one listens to me. Heedless, crude joking in with those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, along with people who are sexually immoral, those who are impure, those who are greedy or covetous, and those who are simply idolaters. This is the opposite, he says, of giving thanks. The antidote for crude joking is giving thanks because crude joking is always there to make people degraded. It is always there to prop yourself up at others' expense. But thanksgiving always looks up to God and gives him thanks for every good thing that you have. Friends, humor is good, and certainly I appreciate humor. But you must know how to use it. Don't cover your sin with jokes. Don't try to blow it off and blow especially your sin off with a plea of I was just joking. If you do, you will likely not understand the purity, the goodness, and the beauty of the kingdom of God. And lastly, mistake your hypocrisy. The Jews and Pilate themselves himself both mistake the hypocrisy that's going on. The Jews show that they are hypocritical here because they don't really care about the charges they're bringing against Jesus. They're handing over Jesus, presumably because he is declaring himself to be the king of the Jews, and because he's declaring himself to be the king of the Jews, there is this thought in Pilate's head, and certainly in the Jews' head, to get Pilate to condemn him, that that means that he is going to lead an insurrection, he is going to lead a revolt and a rebellion against Rome. We know that they don't actually care about that. We know that they're not terribly concerned with Rome coming down and crushing them. We know that they're not because they receive back somebody who is here called a robber. So not really the full term. He's an insurrectionist. He, he's a zealot. He is somebody who thinks that the kingdom of Israel will be given grace by God if they confront Rome. As a matter of fact, many of these people think that, that even though they know that Rome is going to crush them, that they need to lead Israel into a fight with Rome right up to the point of the last man dying so that God might come in his wrath and in his mercy for Israel and deliver them. That is who this man is. And they say, no, we want him. They will condemn an innocent man on a charge of insurrection and receive an insurrectionist back. Pilate's worse. Pilate's whole point, the whole job that he is given there, is to protect the interest of Rome. But he's not interested in protecting the interest of Rome. He knows Jesus is innocent. He comes out and says, I find no guilt in him. He knows Jesus is innocent. He knows that if, if there are two people standing before him, Barabbas and Jesus, one of them poses no threat to Rome at all. The other one has already shown himself to be a threat to Rome. Might be a minor threat, but still a threat. And still he says, here, take one, take Barabbas. The Jews don't care about the truth. Pilate doesn't care about Rome. They both just care about themselves, and they're both hypocrites. Perhaps it's because of personal ambition. Perhaps it's just a deep love and lusting for power. Perhaps it's hatred, the Jews of Jesus, Pilate of the Jews. At the very least, it's an ambivalence to the truth and to justice. Friends, all of us are hypocritical in some way. All of us fail to be consistent in how we live our lives. We say one thing, we do another. But make sure 
that when that's pointed out to you, make sure that you are looking to try and find where you are hypocritical to be done with it. Be consistent in the way that you live your life before the world. We bless God, and then we curse those who are made in his image. We bless God for the good that we receive from him, and we are distraught when he gives us difficult things. We speak in glowing terms about law and justice, but we refuse to see the plight of fellow believers in that same law and justice, or even listen to the trials that they go through. And what's more, we proclaim to love justice, but when the laws don't fit what we want, we just turn a blind eye to them. Friends, these things ought not be so. Be consistent in how you live your life, because that faithfulness is what the kingdom of God is built on. The kingdom of God is not for people who waver. The kingdom of God is not for people who live in the world one day and live for the kingdom the next. Jesus says, do not put your hand to the plow and turn around. Let the dead bury their dead. You need to be all in for the kingdom of God. At the very least, that means living consistently in light of the kingdom. For those of you who are here this morning who do not belong to Jesus by faith, I pray that you won't miss the kingdom. I pray that you don't brush off your sin by ignoring it, by hiding it behind excuses, by thinking of yourself better than you ought to, by thinking that the things that you see before you, whether it's your job or your spouse or your, the rest of your family or the material things that you own are more important than the kingdom of God or simply by thinking of yourself as just a broken person and not a sinful person. Friend, your sin is due a penalty. That penalty is disastrous. It is dreadful and it is wretched. And make no doubt, you will pay for that one day. But if by God's grace, you put your hope and your trust in the fact that this Jesus is your Passover lamb, who's slaughtered by the hands of wretched and evil men, nevertheless fulfills the will of God, allowing you an escape so that he pays the debt that you owe to God. He pays for all of the evil that you have done and instead gives you back life, finding yourself in his kingdom where he protects you from all true evil and wretchedness. Trust in Jesus. See the good and the glory of the kingdom of God and find yourself in it even today. For those of you who do belong to Jesus, you also are capable of missing the kingdom. Do not put your hand to the plow and look behind you, thinking that your future inheritance in Christ is somehow less value than the things that you see around you, which are rusting and moth-eaten and will one day fade away. Do not think that your future inheritance in the kingdom of God, which Paul says, is not worth all foregoing of cable and, and foregoing of automobiles and foregoing of all of the luxuries that we have, but he says, it's not even worth comparing to the suffering that you might go through. Like, all of the suffering that you could possibly imagine that God would allow to come to you in this world, it's not worth comparing. Don't miss the kingdom for those things. Keep your eye on the kingdom. Keep your desires in the kingdom. Keep your treasures in the kingdom. Paul talks to the Philippians about this, and he says, listen, I don't need to remind you that there are many people who live their lives as enemies of the cross. There are many people who live their lives as though their God is just their belly. They're just driven by their own desires. 
and their eyes are only on earthly things. But Paul tells those Philippian believers, you can't be like that. He says this, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. My friends, do not miss the kingdom. See it, trust in it, trust in its real, true reality and live in its light. Let us pray. Father, we all stumble here. For at time, your kingdom seems so far away. And these present things of the earth cling so closely to us. And that's not even to mention our sin. Our sin blinds us. It keeps us from knowing the good of your presence, even in your son, Jesus Christ. Help us in our weakness. Remove both the guilt and the power of our sin. Help us to trust always and only in your salvation and let us hope for a better kingdom than any that we can find here. We ask this for your glory and our good. Amen.